0: This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on the Book of Romans. Well, and he is present here in his church among his people, by his spirit. Amen. And I have to confess, I feel absolutely awful today. Our bed collapsed last night, and my wife accused the children of jumping on it, but I think we know which little monkey was the one destroying the bed, and the whole bed was kind of bowed like this, and my back feels terrible, my eyes feel hot, I'm in danger of collapsing and falling asleep during my own sermon. (laughs) But that doesn't matter, because... Jesus Christ is the shepherd of his sheep. And he has something for all of us today. It doesn't ultimately depend on people. It depends on Jesus alive, reigning, and present among his people by his spirit. So we are not alone. The spirit of Jesus is here and among us and within us. And that's the whole burden of what I have to share with you from Romans chapter 8. So if you have your Bible, please turn there to Romans chapter 8. Hopefully, a well-thumbed chapter in your Bible. And I think if you were told that the secret police were going to come to your house this week and cart you off to labor camp to some political re-education camp, and you only had a few days to memorize one chapter of Scripture, you probably wouldn't go to First Chronicles. I know that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable, but it's not equally profitable. And among the range, the noun range of scripture. There's this chapter, Romans 8, the great 8, that stands like a Mount Everest of the truth of God and the glory of the gospel of God's righteousness. And so I am very excited about what God has to say to us this morning, in these first, or this afternoon in these first 17 verses. Paul writes, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, And by the way, this would be a fantastic chapter if it just had one verse, would it not? But it goes on For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. Now, those 17 verses, I must say, are just wall-to-wall encouragement. Mm -hmm. And if you leave this first part of Romans 8 feeling burdened and condemned and with a whole list of things to do, you have not understood what Paul has to say. And we should just read these verses again. And it's very striking, if you read these verses closely, there is not a single imperative. There are no commands here, no demands It's one grand indicative, and Paul exclaiming, this is what God has done in Christ, and this is what is true of us by the Spirit. Now, of course, there are implications in how we live our lives, but that's not the burden of this text. The burden of this text is that the Spirit of life has set us free from the slavery of sin and the futility and helplessness we experienced when we were under the law, apart from the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is mentioned 15 times in these 17 verses. 15 times in 17 verses. There's no other passage in the New Testament that comes close to that. And so this is the passage, par excellence in Scripture, describing life in the Spirit. And I must say, it stands in stark and total contrast to Romans 7. Was that not a dreary and drudgerous passage to preach through last week? In Romans chapter 7, the last 20 verses, the Holy Spirit is not mentioned once, but the words law or commandment appear 21 times. Okay, here, that's okay. The words law or commandment appear 21 times, the Spirit not one single solitary time. What Romans 7 is describing is not the Christian life, but rather the pre-Christian life, apart from the Spirit, under the law. What the wretched man Paul is describing in that chapter is not someone who struggles with sin like we all do and falls down to one knee only to get back up. This is someone who is enslaved to sin. He is completely unable to do the will of God. And he has to confess, nothing good dwells in me. But now, something good does dwell in us. The Spirit of God dwells within us, and we're free from that slavery to sin. Now stop a minute and think. The practical effects of believing that Romans 7 is a description of the Christian life. That sin still does have to some measure dominion and mastery over us. And that try as we might, our feeble efforts are always doomed to failure. And the flesh will always get the better of it. And in the end, why even really try at all? The best we can hope for is being forgiven failures, and that our mountain of sins will be forgiven at the foot of the cross, but we never change and become the holy people that God has created us to be. I thank God that is not the gospel. Of course, we still have to deal with the reality of sin. I believe that because I'm not insane, right? We all have sin that we deal with. It's daily present, and as Jesus taught us to pray... We must daily ask our Heavenly Father to forgive us our sins, as often as we ask for daily bread. But sin is no longer what dominates our lives. According to Romans chapter 8, we have been transferred from this old realm of the flesh to this new realm of the spirit of the living God. That's why there's no longer any condemnation. We're not under that black cloud of guilt and fear and shame that Romans 7 describes. We experience freedom, justification, confidence, and access before God. Because the Spirit has set us free from that old law of sin and death. And God, Father God, has sent both his son and his spirit to liberate us from slavery to sin. Not only to pay for its penalty, but to actually liberate us in our lives here and now from the dominion of sin. As Romans 8 describes, God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Jesus did not commit sin, but he experienced in his own physical body the effects of life in a fallen world. He experienced suffering and death. And finally, he was nailed on the cross as our sin offering to condemn sin. And notice that second use of the word condemn. You and I, the sinners, are not condemned, but our sin is condemned. Conquered by the victorious Christ As he dies, the power of sin broken, its authority nullified over our lives. Why did God send his son to do that? In order that, Paul says, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but the spirit. And notice that that tiny word in. In. Maybe the most significant word in the sentence. See, we would expect Paul to say that Jesus died so the righteous requirement of the law would be fulfilled for us, which is true. But it's also fulfilled in us by the power of the Spirit. Jesus died so that you and I might become holy people to fulfill what Christ himself Held up as the highest requirement of the law, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That is why Jesus died, so that you and I could truly obey that from the heart. Is it liberation from sin if the penalty's paid for, but we're still under its slavery? if we're still living lives that are essentially the same as before we came to Christ. God forbid, absolutely not. Jesus came to make a real change in our lives. And I'm not offering you a set of principles or truths or some secret of the higher life. I'm just pointing you to the very Spirit of God who dwells in your heart if you are in Christ. See, the glory of the gospel is that we are a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. We are new creations in Christ. And the power of the resurrection spirit dwells within our hearts. And this is what the Old Testament, the believers in the Old Testament longed for, the faithful remnant, as they saw Israel... Again and again. Has anyone ever read through the entire Old Testament? It's really depressing, isn't it? All these ancient kings and continually falling short. And initially it seems kind of hopeful. And oh no, he ended badly. Or the next guy raised up the high places again. And God again and again is appealing to his people to repent and turn back to me. And they are unable to do so. in the end they're sent into exile. And the only solution to this is that God would send... Not only a Messiah to deal with his people's sins, but in the age of the Messiah, his own spirit, to write the law in living letters on our hearts, not just in the stone tablets that Moses brought down, but here in our very inner being. Here's what Ezekiel 36 says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. See, if Jesus just came to pay for our sins and nothing more, we'd still be dead and lost in our transgressions, just as far away from God as before. But Jesus has done far more than that. Not only has he died for our sins, he has risen from the dead so that we might walk in newness of life with him. There was an old little jingle that... uh, a Christian named John Barrett wrote it several hundred years ago. You might have heard it. It goes like this. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly, but gives me wings. See, Jesus came, and his demands were actually even higher than the demands of the Old Testament. He was requiring inward conformity in their hearts But, thank God, he hasn't just come with illicit demands. He actually fulfills those requirements in us by his spirit. And so we cannot meet with Jesus and be left unchanged. That would not be the gospel. And the law can tell us what those demands are, but it is not able to actually help us fulfill them. Let's say you go for a long trek out in the wilderness here in Georgia. Foolishly, by yourself. (laughs) And far away from civilization, you slip on a wet log, and you go hurtling down some Ravine. And when you regain consciousness and wipe the blood from your eyes, you realize to your horror that your leg is pinned under a massive boulder. You can't move it. And you're lying there, and your backpack is over there, and all you have in your hand is your map. Now your map tells you where you are, and it tells you the village you need to get to. But that map is not going to help you get out of your situation, is it? In fact, as you stare first at the map and then at that boulder where your leg is pinned, you start going mad from frustration and then panic. After a few hours, you hear the rattle of stones down the side of the ravine something is coming towards you. And you crane your neck backwards trying to see what fearsome beast this is, and to your unspeakable relief, it's the hairy face of a Georgian shepherd. (laughs) And with the aid of some ropes and some sticks, he manages to get that boulder off of you, he massages the circulation back into your legs, then he pulls out a little clear bottle and forces a fiery liquid down your throat. You gasp, you feel awake and alive, He grabs you by the back and half-guiding, half-pushing gets you to the top of the ravine and he walks with you along that path to your destination. Was the map bad? No, maps are not bad. Maps are good, but they have limitations, don't they? Is the law bad? No, the law is not bad, but it was never intended to free us from this horrible predicament we have gotten ourselves into. That is what Christ does by his Spirit. And now we go off to the destination that the map had marked out in the first place. And so fulfill what God had required of us. So both the Son and the Spirit have come, not just to deal with the punishment for sin, but the power and presence of sin in our very lives. Now, in these 17 verses in Romans chapter 8, there is a second word that occurs many, many times. This word, flesh, occurs 13 times along the 15 times that spirit occurs. And if you have an old NIV, it might say sinful nature, which is actually uh, quite a poor translation, which thankfully was corrected in 2011. Flesh, or sarx, as the Greek word is, It's almost a technical theological word for Paul. We have to read the context very carefully to discern what he means. What he definitely does not mean in Romans chapter 8 is some kind of division between body and soul, as though our physical bodies are kind of gross and disgusting and basically yucky and evil, and the noble pure soul is what we are truly seeking, to be disembodied to long for our souls to be released from our bodies like a a bird is releasing from a cage. That is not Christianity. That is, in fact, the doctrine of demons, Paul says elsewhere. And demons, remember, do not have bodies. They're very spiritual. They're a pure soul, and they're evil. Physical matter was created by God. We don't even have to leave Romans 8 to see That God has a glorious plan, not just for our souls or spirits, but for this very physicality of mine itself. This physicality will share in Christ's resurrection. So that's not what Paul is saying when he makes this sharp disjunction between flesh and spirit. When Paul uses the word flesh, he is speaking of fallen humanity in total hostility to God. The flesh is all about self-worship and self-dependence. And therefore, when Paul says the flesh doesn't submit to God, and indeed it cannot, it can't by definition. The flesh will never worship God. The flesh will never depend on God. Now, that fleshly way of living is emphatically the old way of living that we left behind when we came to Christ. Whenever the New Testament speaks of the old self, it always refers to the old self or the old man having been crucified with Christ. The old man, the old self, is not hanging around with me any longer. That has been decisively dealt with. And so what Paul is talking about here, we have to be very clear is not an inward conflict between flesh and spirit in the Christian. He's talking about two separate realms, two separate people, two kingdoms that are in unending war against each other. And it is not possible to have dual citizenship. Okay, so Paul talks in verse 4, he describes us, as those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Notice he doesn't say, Christians are people who sometimes walk according to the flesh, and sometimes walk according to the spirit. Let me exhort you to try to walk more according to the spirit. Not at all. Paul clearly says, in verse 9, you are no longer of the flesh. You're of the spirit. You belong to that dominion, to that kingdom. So I have to sharply push up against this misleading teaching that Christians still have a sinful nature alongside the new nature. There's, there's, there is sin. There is indwelling, remaining sin we have to deal with. But the old has passed away. At the heart of our being is not a division between spirit and flesh, new nature and old nature. In our heart of hearts, We belong completely and fully to Christ. And sometimes this misleading teaching is taught using this illustration. I wonder if you've heard it. That inside of you are two dogs fighting. Does this sound sound familiar at all? Or maybe two wolves, perhaps? A black dog and a white dog. And I guess for Europeans, the white dog's the good dog. Maybe if you're African, the black dog's the good dog. There are two dogs, a white dog and a black dog. One good and one evil. And they're they're equally matched. And there they are locked in combat, going back and forth. The question is, which one's going to win? And the preacher's point is, it depends on which one you feed. Now let's stop and think carefully about that little story for a moment. Because illustrations have power. First of all, the decision as to which of them wins depends on me, it doesn't resolve anything, because I'm divided between a white dog and a black dog. The conflict between the white dog and the black dog cannot be fixed by referring it to a committee composed of, wait for it, a black dog and a white dog. That doesn't resolve anything. It's basically nonsense. But more disturbing than that is that the Holy Spirit is completely absent from this illustration, isn't he? Unless the Holy Spirit is the white dog and we have to feed him? That doesn't make sense either. This is a terrible illustration. This is really describing Romans 7, isn't it? Thank God we're not left in limbo trying to decide the black dog or the white dog. The black dog or the white dog. It's as though the next James Bond movie they decided that James Bond and the villain were going to be a set of conjoined twins. Two heads and a single body trying to fight over which head to point the pistol at. (laughs) That actually sounds like an interesting movie. (laughs) Maybe the first 30 seconds on Netflix, I highly recommend. Is that the Christian life? Are we this two-headed monster veering back and forth between sin and the Holy Spirit, trying to help out the Holy Spirit as best we can? Absolutely not. Being in the flesh, Douglas Moo says, is no longer a possibility for Christians. We can act in ways that are reminiscent of the flesh. They're old habits that we have to put behind us. But we no longer belong to the flesh. If you are in Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. And by the way, is it liberation from sin? if Satan still has a 50% stake in you? (laughs) Not at all. We belong, body and soul, to God's own spirit. And this is true of every single Christian. There's no such thing as a Christian without the Holy Spirit. No such thing as a Christian who's still waiting for the Holy Spirit. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not a Christian. But if you are a Christian... The Holy Spirit assuredly dwells within you. Thank God. And what we learn as we read through this passage is that the Holy Spirit is merging our own story with Jesus' story. He's merging our story with Jesus' story. He's the spirit of Father God who raised Christ from the dead. This spirit of resurrection life also dwells within me. And he dwells within you. And he's taking you, he's carrying you along the path that Christ himself walked. So, the spirit who rose, who by his power God raised Jesus from the dead, is within you. Assuredly, your body is going to rise from the dead, and your spirit will not remain enslaved to sin and death. So then, verse 15. it's kind of the hinge of the whole passage. Everything else is kind of building up to this. So then, Paul says, we're no longer debtors to the flesh. We owe nothing whatsoever to that old way of life. It has no claim upon us. Not even a 50% claim, a 25% claim, a 10% claim. It has no claim whatsoever on our lives, and when you and I go up this week, we will face temptation, and there are going to be old habits and old ways of thinking and acting that we're going to have to deal with. And thanks be to God, those things can no longer force us to obey. We can foolishly surrender them momentary power in our lives, but they can no longer dominate us and force us to do their will the Holy Spirit dwells within me. Besides, all that stuff just leads to death anyways. I'm ashamed of all that garbage. Why am I still doing this? I want to walk according to the Spirit of life who brings life and joy and peace into my heart. So what we're called to do is by the Spirit put to death those old things. Put them to death Daily, those old habits, those old ways of thinking and acting. And notice, by the Spirit, that's not just parenthetical, mm-hmm. because if we were called to just do it by ourselves, we'd still be acting in a fleshly way, wouldn't we? Mm-hmm. An essential dependence on ourselves and our own resources, and we all know how well that turns out. No, we're called to walk by the Spirit, in step with the Spirit. We're called to act the miracle. You know when I'm thinking of Jesus, the stories of Jesus in the gospel when he healed people. Do you remember when Christ healed the man with the withered hand? And he came to him and he said stretch out your hand. Now this was the one thing the man with the withered hand was unable to do, right? This could have felt like mockery to him. Well, my hand is withered, Jesus. I can't move this. But as he responded in faith to the powerful word of Jesus, life came into his hand. See, Romans 8 is talking about life in the spirit, but it's not talking about passivity. It's not let go and let God. It's about trust God and get going yourself right we must say no to sin and yes to godliness the Holy Spirit's not going to do that stuff for us that's what we're meant to do the law is meant to be fulfilled in us we're meant to act because we're alive now in the spirit but we do so in dependence on the Holy Spirit and we discover to our amazement: have you not again and again as in your weakness you responded in obedient faith to God took that step forward, that the Holy Spirit is always there to help us, to empower us, to make us truly pleasing to God. The good news is that all of us who are so led by the Spirit, Paul says, are sons of God. If we're led by the Spirit, we're sons of God. And by the way, that word led does not mean quiet, gentle guidance. This is not a still, small voice like, Bar, share the gospel with that person on the bus beside you. If you look up this word in the New Testament, it's almost always used, especially in the gospel and acts, to describe people who are being arrested, thrown in prison, and brought before the judge. This is a very forceful leading We have a tiny little kitten, his name is Eddie Snickers, and he's these little yellow bug eyes, and he gets in a lot of trouble. He doesn't really respond to the still, small voice. What I have to do is go to him on the table, as he's got his tiny little snout in my tee, I have to pick him up by the nape of his neck just like his mother does, right? And he kind of, he hangs there (laughs) staring at me, and I hiss at him in his face and, and put him down. That's the kind of leading, almost, that we're talking about. The spirit's Mastery and dominion and control over our lives. That's what the leading of the Spirit means. In fact, this is just how Jesus Himself obeyed the Father during His earthly ministry. Totally submitted to the Spirit of His Father. And so when we model Jesus' own submission to the Spirit of the Father, we're demonstrating that we also are sons sons of God. You see that? The presence and power of the Spirit in your life as you respond in increasing obedience will give increasing assurance that yes, I am God's child. I do share his nature. I am Jesus' younger brother or sister. I do belong to him. And what the Spirit does is he bears witness with our own spirits that we're actually children of God. In some mysterious, almost mystical way, the Spirit powerfully speaks to our inmost heart, to our deepest emotions, assuring us sometimes in overwhelming ways, in our struggles and in our sufferings and weakness especially, that yes, I am God's child. And what arises from our hearts is this cry, Abba, Father. And Abba is this Aramaic word that Jesus used when he prayed to his own Heavenly Father. And it clearly was very striking to the disciples, because this word gets imported into Greek and all these different languages straight into the Bible, untranslated, Abba, Father. And it, it doesn't exactly mean Daddy, like you might have heard. In fact, it was a German scholar who let that cat out of the bag 1967, 50 years ago, and almost immediately retracted it. And the last 50 years, that cat has not wanted to go back in the bag. Abba does not exactly mean father. When we see it in Aramaic, it's almost always used by an adult son speaking to his father. It's not so much about intimacy as it is about, it is about dignity and confidence. And you know, Jesus did not relate to his father as a little toddler with gaga-boo-boo talk, right? He related to him as a son as a dignified son, speaking to his dear father. And that's the kind of relationship that Paul is talking about here. If we're sons and daughters of God, we share fully in the inheritance. We bear God's name. We share. We're partakers of the divine nature. And we're heirs with Christ. We can come to God with total confidence and freedom. That's the glory of the gospel. Mm -hmm. And so when we do that, we're sharing in Christ's own sonship. There's no part of Jesus' sonship that is off limits to us. We are sons of God just as much as Jesus is. We're full co-heirs with Christ. Nothing of the Father's heart is held back from us. When we follow the path that Jesus followed of suffering and obedience, because he learned obedience by what he suffered, when we follow that path, led and controlled and mastered by the Spirit, we too can be confident that we are God's sons and that we will be full heirs of Christ's glory. Let's pray and thank God for this great news, as the worship team comes up. Dear Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that we can address you this way, as your sons and daughters, as your dearly beloved children, that despite our sin and our weakness that we're so aware of, we no longer live under this black black cloud of guilt, fear, condemnation, and death. Thank you that we're no longer enslaved to sin, but that the spirit of resurrection life dwells mightily within our hearts. And Lord, you know the temptations that each of us faces and the struggles that each person here has to deal with. And thank you, God, that we are not alone, that there is always a way of escape from temptation. Because your Spirit has made us home now and forever within our hearts. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.